So when we look at the Eightfold Path as something that emerged from a traditional context in India 2,500 years ago, just pause for a moment with that. For me, when I pause with that, there's a really deep appreciation how the emphasis of where we're at in a postmodern society needs to take into account the cultural shifts that we have gone through over the last 2,500 years. So when we look at the Eightfold Path, which is a core fundamental guideline of how to live in the world. The Eightfold Path. You know, the the classical way of describing it is using the word right. When I have heard people translate sama as connected, my heart goes and my back goes and my belly goes. Yes, that feels right, you know. Connected view, connected thought connected action, connected speech, connected livelihood, connected effort, connected concentration, connected mindfulness. Okay? So from a traditional framework, these things emerged, and within their emergence in that context, there was a shape around the classical way of understanding what they meant, and how to practice with them. The classical interpretation of right view was to contemplate the Four Noble Truths. And it's not as if that is not relevant for us. It's absolutely as relevant for us. One of the ways in which we need to actually bring the contemplation of the Four Noble Truths is by understanding the importance and the significance of our relatedness. So in a traditional framework, relatedness was absolutely given. You did not exist as an individual separate entity apart from family, village, clan, trade. There was no such animal. And for us, it's really a hugely activated structure through which we live. So the Four Noble Truths needs to be practiced also within the context of understanding the way in which we fit into the world of relationship and the importance of relationship in our world. Right thought. Classically, it's the thought of renunciation, of abandoning what is not useful in the path. And I can certainly see how in our modern world where we're no longer really human beings, but human havings and human doings, that there's a way in which, you know, the concept of renunciation, of really looking and seeing how do we shape ourselves and where do we find our value, needs to re-emphasize being and being in relationship with ourselves, with our feelings, with each other, and with the world.
right action classically is described as keeping the five precepts refraining from killing stealing sexual misconduct speech that is untruthful or divisive or meaningless and alcohol and drugs which cloud and confuse the mind when we understand how the act of harming ourselves in any way is a transgression against the precepts when we understand that the longing to have what isn't offered is a a reflection of the precepts when we understand that our sexuality is something that we need to inhabit to embody to recognize is in the present moment rather than just activity that happens with another when our speech is about connecting listening speaking the truth then our speech allows a pathway into our beingness and our connectedness with each other so the precepts as a container can be used as a way to create a boundary but can also be used as a reminder of our relationship with the world and ourselves and our own vital energies when we look at right livelihood and the interest of not causing any harm that's as valid today as it was 2500 years ago but it's also much more complicated today because today when you buy something in the store you don't know what kind of policies the store that made that article keeps its workers under and whether they have adequate safety precautions or when we engage in trade there might be 60% of what we're doing which is really clear and wholesome and some which is gray you know it's important to invest money wisely and what does that mean in terms of what kinds of things are we financing when we look at right action and right livelihood and right speech from a contemporary perspective we need to really understand that in our world now part of what we need to do is to create the context for meaningful relatedness that it isn't assumed that this actually is something that's given that it's automatically going to be there by just coming together with people So part of right action, right livelihood, right speech in our contemporary world is creating context where we can nourish the depth of our practice, nourish the depth of what happens when we meet in a genuine, authentic way where we're able there's enough safety 
to speak the truth about what is true and meaningful. It's not assumed that will just automatically happen when two people connect. So there needs to be the effort as well as the view that values that. When we look at right mindfulness or connected mindfulness from the classical perspective, it's the four foundations of mindfulness. Immersing awareness in the body. Knowing our posture. Knowing the feelings. Knowing what comprises the body. Understanding the importance of being embodied. Watching feeling the sense of pleasure, unpleasant or neutral, that arises with every contact. And then the mind, which feels and cognizes and perceives. The third foundation of mindfulness is to know what is arising in our minds without judgment. To know that it is all allowed There isn't a right and wrong mind state, but it all needs to be embraced. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is bringing together the contemplations of Dhamma that allow us to look at what's arising in a way that allows ease and balance and release. Now, one of the things that can happen a lot for people on retreat is is that because the schedule is fairly simple and decisions are made and it's set up in a way that's safe and there isn't too much impingement, there's much more sense of ease and decompression and spaciousness and concentration and a sense of uh, feeling able to connect with what's arising. And we can forget that Mindfulness is to be with what is, rather than to be identified with certain states of mind. So we confuse mindfulness and concentration. Concentration is the gathering in, the collectedness, the ability to focus deeply. And mindfulness is the capacity to know what is arising. From the perspective of the third foundation of mindfulness, overwhelm is a totally valid object of meditation. And many of us are very familiar with this object of meditation when we leave the retreat. (laughs) But we think that it's not, we're not meditating properly if this is what we're feeling because we've gotten used to identify calmer states of mind in association with right meditation. But that's what happens with concentration. So we need to understand that there's a difference between meditation, mindfulness, and concentration. And that we are able to open to whatever is arising. Now obviously, there are things and practices and ways of being in groups and supporting each other with online conversations that support it. And again, in concentration... What's really helpful is to create space in the day where we can decompress. 
I've been meditating for a long time. And I make time every day to decompress. I have time in my vihara where I sit quietly. And I have time where I go and hang out with rocks and with nature. Because my mind opens and lets go and releases. And I remember what it is to include everything in a way that is hard for me to stay in direct connection with when I spend a lot of time on the computer, which is what I do when I'm not teaching or I'm not speaking with people. So we need to be discerning and skillful about how we self-regulate and set our days up so that we have time to do what actually nourishes us. Or set a week up so that you have a little bit extra time. So Mondays is my day off the computer. And I spend the whole day on the rocks. And I guard that like with a fierce mother bear, you know. I don't schedule things on Monday. Because in spite of the fact that it's my life to meditate, the reality is, is that I need to protect this so that I can actually stay connected with what it is that I know. So just understanding that the Eightfold Path that was given in a traditional framework needs to be understood in a slightly different context in our postmodern world. And what I come back to again and again and again and again and again and again and again is that in this context, what needs to be the hub of the Eightfold Path is awareness of relationship as what supports all of the spokes of the path coming into fruition. So I just wanted to offer this as a brief contemplation for reflection and and then um, Sharon and I wanted to field questions or a little bit of discussion about the mechanics of that. And I very much wanted Sharon included in that because as a householder with a husband, I don't have a husband. You know, I don't know about husbands. <laughs> Let me tell you about husbands. <laughs> I don't know about stepchildren. You know, I don't have kids. And so it's really important to recognize that practice is lived where we're at and not to idealize one over the other. But before we went into the questions and answer part, we had we wanted to outline the schedule for tomorrow so you have a sense of the shape of the day. Okay? 